All right, so let's talk about this interesting story uh, here at the end of Genesis 12. Um, what does Abram do when he's stuck between a rock and a hard place? Uh, it's kind of what we do when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Uh, notice the rock. The rock is the famine. Uh, it says there in verse 10, a famine was in the land of Canaan. Remember, this is the land God told Abram to go to. Leave your family behind and come with me and I'll show you a land that I'm going to give you. And it's almost like as soon as he gets to where God wants him to go, psh, famine. Which is in itself a whole like sermon that you could do. Uh, when you're following God, don't expect that everything's going to bounce your way all the time. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the path that God you know, paves for his people is often filled with difficulty. And that's on purpose. It's by God's design. Same thing here. Uh, but nevertheless, this was the rock, famine in the land. It was a very severe, severe famine, so he couldn't stay there at all. There was no way to sort of tide, tide himself over by storing up food. There was just nothing. It was probably a drought, and so he had to go all the way to Egypt. Well, here's the hard place. He was between a rock, and now he's by a hard place, which is Egyptian culture. Uh, Abraham apparently knew something about that culture, and he predicted it. Exactly. Uh, he knew that if he took his wife down there, uh, that they would see her beauty and they would immediately try in some way to steal her away from him, either by killing him or by just taking her. And so he comes up with a scheme. Caught between a rock and a hard place, human beings, what do we do? We like to scheme. We like to figure out our own personal way of getting out of the bind. We don't usually go to consult God we we're kind of afraid, actually, of God's answer if we tried to consult with him because his way of waiting on him is usually pretty scary. And so taking it into our own hands is just easier, we think. And yet this story teaches loud and clear. Dependence on God always beats self-made schemes. Always. Every single time. So if you look at your bulletin, there's three ways we'll see this. First of all, let's look at the scheme itself that Abraham hatches and actually why it's not the right thing to do. Then secondly, we're going to see uh, where that scheme leads. It doesn't lead to God's blessing like Abraham thinks it will. But then finally, look at how God's plan comes through, which shows that relying on God is way better than scheming. Okay? Let's think about that. First of all, the scheme that Abraham comes up with. It makes sense, doesn't it, what Abraham plans uh, it actually, in a way, it works. In a way. Uh, what is it that Abraham plans? Deception. Deception. Uh, he tells uh, Sarah, lie for me, which um, he's going to do this again, by the way. Abraham does this twice, same scheme, and his son uh, Isaac does this once. So this apparently was a family scheme. You know, this was the thing that they did. Maybe, maybe this was common not outside of Abraham's family back then to do this. But it's funny because in Abraham's case, the, the lie that he tells Sarah to tell is actually a half-truth. Because Sarah actually is Abraham's half-sister. Um, later in the next story, you know, Abraham will say, well, well, Sarah does come from my dad, but not from my mom. Well, we're not going to deal with that tonight, but uh, in general, the Bible does not uh, allow this. Uh, in fact, laws are made later against this kind of thing, but at the time, you know, apparently 
that there wasn't the same kind of scruples about this kind of thing. He is, they are half-siblings. And yet, clearly, Abraham is trying to deceive in what he says. It's, it's not that he wants Pharaoh to know, hey, she's my half-sister. Yeah, I know it's kind of weird, but I married my half-sister. That's not what he's getting at. What he's trying to get Pharaoh to think is, she's not my wife at all. Now, why does he take this path? Why does he hatch this scheme? What is he, what's the outcome he's looking for? Not to be dead. In fact, that's, that's really all he says. He doesn't say, now, honey, I want to protect you. Your honor, your purity, I don't want Pharaoh to harm you or interfere with you in any way. Instead, it's, will you please do a solid for me so that I can live? (laughs) Will you please cover me so that I don't die? Now, Abraham is already at this point a man of faith, but apparently he's not a man of very great faith yet. Let's think about it in both ways. Thinking of Abraham as a man of faith, which we saw last week, God came to Abraham, and Abraham actually went from his father's house and did a very bold thing. He moved his family away from his kindred, which was very countercultural. He's a man of faith. From the perspective of a man of faith, why does Abraham want to save his own skin? Human nature, still a man. Yet, God actually promised something related to him being alive. And the thing that God promised related to him being alive hasn't happened yet. Uh, Abraham doesn't have a single child of his own. And God promised, you're not not only going to have one child, you're going to have many children. And your your family is going to become a nation. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the families of the whole earth. God really, I mean, he swung for the fences. When he came to Abraham and gave a promise, it's a huge promise, but it hinges on Abraham being alive at least long enough to have at least one kid to get it started. And so Abraham, you could give him some benefit of the doubt here. He's desperately trying to make sure that God's promises can get fulfilled. But can human scheming fulfill the promises of God? That's the question. Can human beings carry out the promises of God? Doesn't seem that way. Now, let's think about it from the other angle. Abraham is a man of faith, but he's really not a man of strong faith yet. And so from the non-strong faith perspective, why is Abraham wanting to save his skin? He likes his self like we all do. I mean, every human has ever, always liked themselves at least to some degree. Yeah, he, he couldn't, yeah, you're right, he probably couldn't understand why. Okay, why would God lead me into a land where immediately there would be a famine? And then I would have to run into the only nation available, which was a nation that didn't really treat strangers kindly, apparently. I, and their reputation is known because I know what they're going to do to my wife and to me. Abraham probably is having a hard time computing that which leads him to do something desperate to try to basically do God's job when God's not doing it. And you, I think we, sitting where we sit today, can understand Abraham's reasoning from both angles because there's a little bit of both of those in us too, right? There's a little bit of, oh man, I really believe God's word is true. Let me make it happen. Let me figure out how to make it work. 
But then there's also in us that side that is, oh, yeah, God's promise is great, great, great. What about me? What about just what I want? Don't you feel that? Don't you feel both of those things in you? Which, both of which lead you to scheming of various kinds? And none of this is even to mention the fact that the scheme Abraham hatches is a scheme that's morally questionable. Um, he asks Sarah to lie. Even if it's a half-truth, he asks Sarah to lie in order to deceive Pharaoh and everybody else. That, that's not morally very good, right? Y'all agree? Uh, of course, we could get into the discussion of, is it ever right to lie? Um, you know, that, that, of course, is a discussion. Um, the famous example of that is if the Nazis come to your house and if you're hiding Jewish people and they ask you, are you hiding Jewish people? Is it wrong to say you're not? You know, that's like the famous conundrum. And, you know, it doesn't have to be that extreme. There are many cases where we might feel like it's acceptable to tell a, what we might call a white lie. But in general, it's important to remember the Bible was pretty clear on the truth and on truth-telling and on not being afraid of the truth, which is what's critical to this story. Because this story, Abraham wants to deceive because he's afraid of where telling the truth might land him, even though God has already told him where he was going to land him. Do you see that? God already gave him a word that says, Abraham, this is what is going to happen in your life. Boom, period. And here Abraham has reached a place where he thinks, well, I have to lie. I have to disobey God in order to get to where God says I'm going to get. He's weaving quite the web here, isn't he? It's going to end up actually trapping him in his own net. And that's the way, uh, that's the way our schemes tend to do. I remember when I was a kid, um, I was, I think, in first grade. And maybe I've told you this story before, but we were out at PE running the track. And there were cones set up around the perimeter of the track. And, you know, those cones are supposed to tell the kids, this is where you run. Well, one day, you know, I was running alongside one of my little girlfriends uh, who I thought she thought a lot about me. This is first grade, you know, but I'm like, I'm Mr. Cool. And this girl's like, yeah, you're running fast. You're cool. And so I thought, I'm going to show you how cool I am. And I kicked one of the cones. And it went flying right across the field. And I thought, yeah, you know. And the girl's like, man, you're cooler than I thought. And everything seemed to be going well. Until the end, you know, when the coach pulled us together. And he got real serious. And he said, kids, somebody kicked a cone. And, um, you know, you know how, that, how it is when you're a kid and you, you know you're caught, but you're not sure if you're caught. And, you know, the butterflies are rising, your throat starts to get tight, and you're, you're sweating. Somebody kicked a cone. You all know I've told you not to be kicking my cones. And um, now, but I'm going to let you confess, he said. Who wants to confess to the kicking of the cone? You know, I look around. I, yeah, I'm cool. I was like, I don't, I don't know who did it. In fact, eventually, after a long period of awkwardness, he looked right at me, Stan, Stanley, whatever it was he called me, whichever one at that time. Um, did you kick the cone? I looked him straight in the eye and said, no, sir. I did not kick that cone. I don't know who did it. That's a terrible person, but I, I did not kick that cone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, did, and Robert wasn't out there, so it couldn't have been Robert that kicked the comb. So I couldn't just be like, look at Robert. <laughs> Looked him right in the eye and lied to him. And I remember, I mean, instantly I felt all the guilt, and I was like, oh, man, I've done terrible. But one thing I did not know is that the coach saw me kick the comb. He saw it, and, and he right away said, oh, you did kick the comb. And then everybody's head goes, Shoo, right to me. And I just, you know, I'm pretty sure I just started crying right away. And t- You know, I was first grade. But that story has always impressed on me something. And, and I know, you know, first grade lessons are first grade lessons. But nevertheless, they can stick with you for a long time. And that, that lesson always, always impressed on me that a lie, and I used them after this too. So don't, don't think that I'm trying to tell you that I never lied since that day. I'm not trying to tell you that. But from that day, I knew a lie was never going to do what I thought it was going to do. Even though in the moment, oh, it seemed like an ever-present help in time of need. To look at that man and say, no, sir, I, didn't, I kicked no cones. It felt so good. And yet, a lie will always find it you out. And the truth will always out, as they say. And that actually happens with Abraham in the most unlikely way. The scheme that he hatches, he thinks that scheme is going to get him to where God promised he was going to go. But instead, Abraham simply traded his scheme for simply waiting on God to get him where he was going to go. Right? Big difference between scheming and waiting. And waiting on God is hard to do, but waiting on God involves trusting and obeying, which means you're going to do the right thing even when you think it won't lead to a good outcome. Even when you think it'll lead to an outcome that's opposite of God's promise. Because Abraham thought, if I tell the truth, I'm going to die and God's promise is not going to be fulfilled. Abraham's calling was still to tell the truth because God told him to tell the truth. And let God figure out how to get his promises done. Isn't that hard to do? To let God figure out how he's going to get done what he gets done? Wow. It's been very hard for me at various times throughout my life. Um, Living by faith is hard in many areas of life. I mean, think about at work. How hard is it to sometimes live by faith and wait on God rather than scheme? In your finances, how hard is it to wait on God instead of scheming? Parenting, we talked about that this morning. I got some parenting schemes, right? It's a lot harder to wait on the Lord's work in the lives of those kids. Your guilt, it's it's easier to come up with a scheme to cover your guilt. Church, it's even easy in church to come up with schemes instead of waiting on how God wants to grow his church and develop his church. The point of this story with Abraham is this. Abraham needed to learn that walking by faith meant trusting, obeying in every circumstance, no matter how hard, and that he always had the opportunity to come boldly before God's throne of grace to find help. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to dig himself into a hole, which is exactly what he did. So let's look at the second point. Uh, What kind of hole does Abraham dig himself into? Well, it's the kind of hole that you don't think is a hole, but it's a hole. Let me explain. Uh, Sometimes in life you think you're winning and you're losing. Sometimes in life you think you're winning, but you're actually losing. Look at Abraham. Uh, Let's look at uh, 
verse um, 14 and following. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and exactly the same thing happened that Abraham thought. Uh, The princes of Pharaoh saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. Pharaoh took her into his house. And verse 16, for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham. And he had, meaning Pharaoh gave him, sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. Read between the lines. Pharaoh gave him all the wealth and status symbols that everybody at this time period chased after. Pharaoh made Abraham very rich, which is what chapter 13, verse... um, 2 says in in Genesis. Now Abraham, when he left Egypt, was very rich because Pharaoh had made him very rich. He took the the riches that Abraham already had and he added to them many times over. Now that seems like winning. Right? Abraham, praise the Lord. My life got saved. Sarah, okay, yeah, she's basically a slave in Pharaoh's house, but I got saved and look at all this stuff. Hashtag winning. Right? I'm doing well at life. I'm a wealthy person. And yet, being wealthy is not all it's cracked up to be. Look at this story. Think about it. How is it true in Abraham's life that simply being wealthy and alive is not what God promised him? What's Abraham missing? His wife, (laughs) childbearing possibilities, his honor, her honor. I mean, thank the Lord that it seems like when this kind of thing happened in the ancient world, the women that were brought into the harem usually spent 12 months just kind of getting acclimated to the harem before they were actually fully wedded to the man. We learned that from the story of Esther, by the way where Esther similarly was brought into the harem of the king. And 12 months she spent alone getting trained to be a princess, and then she was brought in. Thank the Lord there was that so that Sarah didn't get fully incorporated in, if you know what I'm saying. At least there was that that was saved. But other than that, he shot his honor all to pieces, as well as hers. He's wealthy, he's successful in the world, but he doesn't have the blessing of God. Listen to this. Possessions without the blessing of God aren't a blessing. Hear from Jesus. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the connection between that and this story? He's a rich man, but he's moving further away from the kingdom of heaven. God's going to now have to go and get him from where he is, which God is faithful to do with all of us. He goes and gets Abraham and has to pull him back into the kingdom of heaven. The increase of wealth didn't mean an increase in the kingdom of heaven you know, proximity. It didn't, it didn't involve a closer proximity to the kingdom of heaven for Abraham. It actually involved a further separation from the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, this is not to say that God doesn't ever save rich people. He does. But he only can, he only will, by 
causing that person to be weaned off of reliance on their riches. Which is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. Now, Abraham is, the, is kind of the shining example because Abraham, for the rest of his life, is very rich. And he ends up being a very faithful man, and so that's always a possibility. But you'll notice as this story unfolds with Abraham, he gets, more, he gets less and less reliant on these things. He gets less and less um, you know, full of angst and anxiety about preserving them. He's more generous with them, more open-handed with his stuff. Because to have possessions without the blessing of God is not to have a blessing at all. The blessing that God promises his people is the blessing of himself. Which you can have whether you have riches or whether you don't have riches. Right? Makes sense? Yeah. There you go. You can only have one fortified city. Is it the Lord or is it wealth? Um, another proverb says something like, it's better to have nothing and yet be blessed with the presence of God than to have everything and be miserable without him, right? And we all know that. We all know this. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, we've all experienced what it's like to have but then to be empty. And we also know what it feels like to not have and feel full. Abraham is having to learn this too, just like us. You know, it's like that scene in Indiana Jones um, at the end of the movie, right? Where they're finding the Holy Grail, and everybody thinks the Holy Grail is all the jeweled, you know, cups, the ones that look super fancy. And it's only Indiana Jones who knows. It's that dirty wooden, I don't know if it was wooden or not, but whatever it was made out of, it was this wooden, tattered cup. They, they chose the mentality of the world. Indiana Jones somehow had insight into God's values and his kingdom in that, that story. And, and he lives and they die. Remember, you have chosen poorly. <laughs> and they all kind of, you know, the magic of 80s animation, they fade out. It doesn't look like much to watch it now, but I'm sure at one time it looked cool. The same thing is true of our lives. You know, we can choose poorly, we can choose wisely. And... The difference between one and the other is whether we're choosing to have whatever we have with God or whether we're wanting whatever we have, whether or not we have God. Abraham's having to learn that age-old lesson. Hmm. Uh, when you follow Jesus, he is going to teach you how to develop a taste for the greater sweetness of fellowship with him over all the sweetnesses of the things of this world. And, and that process, like it was with Abraham, is going to be sometimes bitter and painful. Right? Sometimes bitter and painful. He's weaning you off of the things of this world and developing in you a taste for the greater sweetness of fellowship with himself. Possessions without the blessing are not really that great of a blessing after all. Now, last thing, God's great intervention. God shows us something about himself at the end of the story, which is beautiful. Uh, in fact, he reveals something about himself that would be true again and again and again. Look at verse 17. Uh, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife, and 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you tell me she, she was your wife? Why didn't you tell me that? She, you said she was my sister so that I took her for my wife. Here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders to send them out and to protect them from Egypt. Uh, well, let's just start here. Where have you seen this pattern before? God afflicts Pharaoh with plagues so that Pharaoh lets his people go out of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, th this is a thing for God, right? This is the first time God does this. And here Moses is actually writing this to the people who've also just been delivered like Abraham had been delivered all those years ago, 500 years before. They too were stuck in Egypt because of e Egypt's bad culture. They were held slaves and abused. And God came and afflicted Pharaoh and his house with plagues. And Pharaoh finally gives up and says, go, get out of here. Out of my sight. I don't want to see you anymore. God humbles the greatest man on earth. And through that humbling, delivers his people out of a situation that they could not have delivered themselves out of. What's God showing about himself? He's showing that he is a consistent covenant keeper. God is a consistent covenant keeper. This is where we started tonight. We said, hey, if God's promised you something, do you have to scheme to get there? Answer, no. If God promised you something, he's going to deliver it. He is faithful to keep his covenant promises. Uh, in fact, this story shows even when you mess it up by trying to scheme for it, he's still going to find you where you are and get you and deliver it to you. <laughs> which is what he does for Abraham and later what he, what he ends up doing to Israel. Because think about it, why, how did Israel end up in Egypt as a nation? Was it through a good thing or a bad thing that they did? Real bad thing. What'd they do? Sold Joseph. I mean, another scheme, wasn't it? Uh, Joseph had this dream, and they thought, I don't want Joseph to be the Lord over us, so we're going to scheme to make sure that doesn't happen. And they sold their brother. And that ends up being all of them get sold into slavery into Egypt eventually. And God finds them, plagues Egypt, gets his people out, and delivers them the promise that he had promised all those years ago. God never promises something that he doesn't tend to deliver, even when we don't know how he's going to deliver it, we can always trust his heart, which is to deliver and to back up the things that he has said with actual action. Let me say that again. Even when we don't see how God is going to do it, we can trust that God will do it because it's a matter of character for God. It's a matter of character. Are there things in your life that you do just because you know you're, that it's what you do? Things that you pride yourself in. Maybe it's telling the truth. Maybe it's working hard at work. And you just say, this is what I do because I've committed to doing it a long time ago. And I do it because that's who I am. It's what I do. Well, if we've got things like that, do you think God doesn't have things like that? I'm going to tell you, God feels that way about every one of his attributes. He's very jealous, very zealous to guard Every one of his attributes, he's determined to be true to them. And so for God to break a single promise is unthinkable. 
Um, Romans says this. This is Paul in Romans 8. He says, if God gave his son up for us all, if he didn't even spare his own son, how will not God give us everything we need with the son? Right? If God didn't spare the highest cost for his people, do you think God's going to spare lower costs that are required to love you and to keep you and to deliver to you what he's promised? You can't argue with that logic. It's theological logic, which is the best kind of logic. In fact, I think this whole story reminds us that having good theology is very important. And it's not just an academic thing to have good theology. It's not just a matter of being able to win a trivia night on Bible or something. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, did I say that? <laughs> yeah. We had a trivia night recently, and somebody won in the room. Um, that's not what it's about, right? Uh, learning theology is about knowing a person, a person that you can rely on in dark times. You can't wait till you're in the dark to try to figure out who God is. Uh, you can, but it's very hard, and, and it's very rare to find him in those times if you haven't already found him. When you go into dark times, though, and you know who he is, it's a fight to hang on to who you know he is, but at least you got something to fight to hang on to. Having sound and good biblical theology is one, should be one of the greatest priorities of your life. Uh, R.C. Sproul said, um, everybody's a theologian. You're either a bad one or a good one. But everybody has thoughts about God. They're either mistaken or they're right. And the reason they're mistaken is they're not based upon the Scripture. And the reason they're right is that they are based upon the Scripture. This is what held Job, for example. Job had great theology. Job's theology was tested down to the last crumbs. And yet the outcome of Job's, of Job's suffering was, God, even if you slay me, I will trust in you. That's what he says. Even if you slay me, I'll trust you. Wow, don't you want that kind of faith? Well, I'm telling you, if you don't have that kind of faith right now, well, welcome to the club. Abraham doesn't either at this point yet. But notice, this whole story is happening so that Abraham would have another experience of God, another revelation of God in his, in his life that would build up a sound theology, a sound view of who God is, so that the next time Abraham's in dire straits, he's going to act different. In fact, next time we meet uh, in chapter 13, we're going to see it right away. Uh, two more crises happen right in a row in chapter 13 and 14. Crisis and then crisis. In neither case does Abraham scheme. In both of the next two cases, Abraham says, All right, God, whatever you want, do it. Here I stand. I know who you are. In fact, in one of the stories coming up in chapter 14, another king offers to give him wealth, and Abraham says, No, 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 I'm not doing that again. I ain't taking nothing from you. I did that once. I'm not doing it. I'm not taking a dime from you so that you can't say I made Abraham rich. I want everybody to know God made me rich if I'm rich. And he made me poor if I'm poor and blessed be the name of the Lord. Because Abraham had good theology. 
Not just book theology. Heart theology. And so, kind of going back to what we said this morning. God's word has got to be right there in the center of our lives. It's got to be in the center of our families, our relationships, our church life. Because that this is where we learn who God is. This is it. The Bible is so consistent. It tells a, a picture of God that's unified. Even though it's dizzying in its diversity, it's still unified. It tells a singular picture of who God is. It doesn't vary at all on, on the topic about God. It doesn't, in, in one place veer off its course. It presents God completely unchanging and unchangeable for you to embrace and know in the ins and outs of your daily life, even in those times of famine, whatever form they come in, even in those times when you feel like you're being threatened by people, like Abraham did, you can know waiting on God, depending on God, is always better than my scheming. Because I know who God is. Maybe Abraham at this point in his life felt like God was kind of new to him and he was new to God. That's going to change. That's going to change for Abraham. And you're going to see his life correspondingly change. And the same thing should be true for us. When we first become Christians, yeah, we're going to have lots of more and more stumbles when it comes to faith and scheming. But the more we go with God, the, the more we ought to change. Because we know who God is. We know it. Amen.